Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Senator Robert Taft, Vice President Alvin Barkley, General Matt Ridgway, Bob Hope, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Charles Wilson, and more than 40 other people in the news, and the biography of a pint of blood in the ninth performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. time has come. 1950 was the year of awakening. 1952 will be the year of deliverance. The 523, the North Jersey Coast train, the broker, lays in track number four. Passengers for South Amboy. I remember a GI in Korea, tired, beaten, and hungry. He had just come back from the lines. They told him after a couple hours rest, he'd have to go back. And he turned around and said, what do you want, blood? Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Now, here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. America's vast and vital system of railroads has almost two million passenger and freight cars moving across its arteries every week. On Monday of this week, about half of this rolling stock was stalled and piled up in the railroad yards. On Tuesday of this week, six of those two million cars were strewn across a muddy embankment near Woodbridge, New Jersey. There was no relationship between the strike and the wreck. The crew of the train wreck was a regular one, had not been on strike. The biggest story in America this week was the railroads. The 523, the North Jersey Coast train, the broker, lays in track number four. Passengers for South Amboy. Manhattan, besides being an island where people live is also an island which working men and women visit each day to toil on and touch its gold and then depart. Almost half a million of these commuters come charging across the city's moats via the buses, tubes, and tunnels, and ferries in a violent attack, which begins each morning and ends each evening with a retreat back to Westchester, Long Island, and Jersey. On Tuesday afternoon, shortly after five, the broker's special of the Pennsylvania Railroad pulled out of the station at Jersey City and headed towards Asbury Park, Long Branch, Deal, and other points on the resort and suburb-lined Jersey coast. It passed over the flat Jersey marshes. At 5.25, it had passed Newark. At 5.36, Rawway. At 5.43, the Marchio family, who live in a small bungalow near a railroad trestle in Woodbridge, New Jersey, were sitting down to dinner. Mother and father were having dinner when they felt the house rock. They didn't hear a crash, they just felt the house shake. And she ran to the window, 
but she couldn't see the crash because of the smoke. There were great billows of smoke. My brother was lying on the living room couch, and uh, he's the one that jumped up and said, Mom, I think uh, the uh, train crashed. And he ran out, and he was the first one to get to this car that was up-tilted, and he helped four people out. The engine of the broker had gone across a temporary overpass at Woodbridge. When eight cars of the train lurched, left the track, and turned this rain-soaked, muddy Jersey embankment into a strange shelf of twisted, distorted steel with the dead and injured sprawled across the faded upholstery of the cars. CBS reporters Ed Scott and John Merriman left the newsroom in New York with the first flash. These are some of the sounds they recorded as rescuers went to work. Spring-like thaw of that warm Tuesday made it impossible to climb the slippery embankment. Rescue workers used hook and ladders to bring the dead and injured down to the core of ambulances waiting on the road below. A survivor told us how he first felt the disaster. I got on the train at Newark, and the train was awfully crowded, and I was riding in the car with the lights went on. So when we passed through Woodbridge here, all of a sudden I felt a lurch. It came in two lurches. The one, and then the next one was worse than the first one. The first one just knocked us off balance, and the second one went down. And I landed on top of another woman, and we helped to get the people up, and I got out of the car. This Jersey doctor was on the scene minutes after the wreck. Uh, Dr. C. Howard Rothfuss of Woodbridge, New Jersey. I just came from one of the coaches. I believe it was the third one from the last. There were at least 15 dead in there. We were able to save nine. Two of them were cut out with cut out or cut loose by acetylene torches. And it's quite a gruesome affair. Hank D'Angelo worked until morning, told us this story. Hank D'Angelo. Uh, well, uh, the sight is something I've never seen before. There's, there's bodies just brought all over the place. Headless, legless, armless. It's just the biggest sight I've seen. Everyone is dead. The mayor of this small community of Woodbridge stood at the foot of the embankment near the fire engines, correlating the grim statistics. There's about a couple hundred critically injured, and uh, they hope that uh, they're not as badly injured as we think because they have to give them the hypodermics, you know, and it's hard to tell just how badly they are injured. So we hope that uh, it won't exceed the 50 mark, but it looks pretty bad. It's a very bad catastrophe. The mayor of Woodbridge was wrong. By morning, the death toll was already 70. By evening, it would be 83, then 84, with more than 125 still in hospitals. Preliminary investigation indicated that the trestle itself was sound. The broker's special had not slowed down for the temporary span as ordered. However, no signal had been installed to slow it down. Account of labor trouble, all New York Central, Harlem Division, Putnam Division, and all Hudson Division trains destined as far as Poughkeepsie, will not run until further notice. Elsewhere, the wildcat strike of railroad switchmen had crippled vital links of the nation's 225,000 miles of track. 
The yards in New York, Chicago, St. Louis, and Peoria being the worst bottlenecks. The union officials insisted the strike was unauthorized, had ordered their members back to work. But in droves, the switchmen were reporting sick. And in the choked yards of the Illinois Central in Chicago, cars were rolling to a stop with chalked slogans written on their sides. This one car says, as written on the side, high taxes, high cost of living, dirty politics, that's what we have in Washington. And then another car in back of it has still more. Says, let's clear house each four... On Monday night, with post offices unable to move their mail, with auto factories suspending operations, blast furnaces cooling down, a large part of the industrial east and midwest running low on supplies, mobilization director Charles E. Wilson asked for 15 minutes of air time and made a direct appeal to the railroad men. I ask you now, as loyal and patriotic Americans, to return to your jobs. I ask you to start those tanks rolling. I ask you to start the steel mills going again and to start up the flow of nails and food. I ask you men who are shutting down the railroads to accept your responsibilities as Americans to our fighting men, to your fellow countrymen. I ask you to report for work on your next shift. Don't put it off. Settle this with your own conscience. Mr. Wilson's plea did not go unanswered. By Tuesday afternoon, most of the lines in the East were moving again. By Wednesday, service out of New York and Boston was normal. The New Haven Railroad announces restoration of through service commencing today with the 10 a.m. to Boston. But in Chicago, Peoria, and St. Louis, the back-to-work movement was slower until yesterday when the strike collapsed. The president said the Brotherhood leaders were acting like a bunch of Russians. The army ordered strikers back to work by 4 p.m. tomorrow or face the loss of their jobs. The army, which is supposed to be running the railroads, announced a temporary raise of 12 and a half cents for the switchmen. That's half of what they would have received under a contract initialed by their leaders but turned down by the rank-and-file union members. But with pressure from the president and the army, the switchmen went back to work, many grumbling that they had not received a fair deal that their two-year-old grievances were still unsettled. And as the switchman reported back on the job, many of the nation's industrial plants that had been closed down by the strike began to get into production again. Your ear is not tuned to an Indian reservation in Oklahoma or New Mexico. This is Washington, D.C., as 11,000 ardent Republicans sat in New Line Arena, ate box lunches of hard-boiled eggs and a chicken in every box, and they reaffirmed their belief in the GOP and its victory at the polls in 1952. An Indian tribe was imported to do a war dance on the arena floor, and as party leaders Taft, Wherry, McCarthy, and the rest looked on, Scotch bagpipers marched across the hall, heralding the fresh hopes of the Republican Party. After the Indians and the bagpipers, George Murphy, the actor, led the cheering, Fred Waring, the singing, and then the big guns of the party did the speaking. First, there was Guy Gabrielson, chairman of the Republican Party. One year ago tonight in this hall, I promised that the Republican Party would be the strongest, most active, most vigorous party in the history of our country. The last election proved that this was not an empty promise. Then the senior senator from Ohio. 
The Republican Party today has every right to ask for the support of the working people of the United States. Today, the Republicans alone undertake to protect him against excessive government regulation and taxation. It aims at peace in the world, in spite of the dangerous world possession to which the Truman policies have brought this country. The House Minority Leader, Joe Martin. I say the time has come when we must restore the government to the people, all the people, the way the founding fathers designed it. 1950 was the year of awakening. 1952 will be the year of deliverance. One of the biggest ovations of the evening was reserved for McCarthy of Wisconsin. Since last year's rally, the American people have repudiated the greatest fraud in history. They turned their backs on the planners. The planners were willing to use the blood of other people's sons to fight communism abroad while they disguised and covered up communism at home. Senator McCarthy's chief foe in the Senate last year was Millard Tidings of Maryland, now gone from the Senate. But last week in this, the senator from Wisconsin had a new voice raised against him. The freshman senator from Connecticut, William Benton, stood up on the floor and accused McCarthy of smear tactics and libel. Senator McCarthy's is a kind of guerrilla warfare. Each of us may have his own adjectives to describe Senator McCarthy's attacks against the State Department on the floor of the Senate, but there is no doubt about what the adjectives add up to and what our private consensus is, though few have chosen to state it publicly. Senator McCarthy's performance can perhaps be summed up in the slogan, if you can't make one libel stick, try another and try another. Senator McCarthy then accused Benton of being just another Atchison stooge. But the gentlemen from Wisconsin and Connecticut were not the only ones under attack in Washington this week. For the first time in his career, that distinguished general from Kansas had become the subject of political attack. Dwight D. Eisenhower was back from Europe, had made his report to Congress and the people. The people seemed more reassured by Ike's report than certain members of the Senate. Senator Wary was disappointed. Senator Taft thought the general's report on his trip only made the North Atlantic plan more hazy and indefinite and uncertain in outline than it was before the general's return. And another Republican senator, George Malone of Nevada, said that General Eisenhower was just a tool of Dean Acheson and the State Department. Senator Malone. Uh, General Eisenhower was not sent on his quickie trip to Europe by our military men at all, but by our State Department. The purpose was obviously to secure support for a decision which was fully decided upon beforehand. I do not believe that anyone is naive enough to think that a week or two of jumping from one European capital to another could accomplish any purpose other than that of propaganda for the preconceived decision of the State Department to send our boys to make up a national line in Europe. Even some of those Republicans who may wish to run Eisenhower on their ticket in 52 seemed willing to take pot shots at him. One of these, Senator Homer Capehart of Indiana, locked horns with Democrat Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. First, Capehart. Senator Humphreys, I, I have great respect and admiration for Eisenhower. In fact, the talk is that he might well be the uh, candidate for president of my party. But nevertheless, you want, must remember, and Eisenhower said himself, that he spent 21 days in 13 countries. Now, man can't spend only 21 days in 13 countries and come back with... Uh, any sort of a report. That's more, that's more days than Senator Taft spent, and he gave us a great report on what we ought to do. He hasn't even made the trip. 
And General Eisenhower spent five years over there as Supreme Commander. Remember this, that Senator Taft, as, as you and I are, are United States senators, and we, we must accept responsibility. We must vote upon these things, and General Eisenhower doesn't have to vote upon them. He can have no responsibility to the American people. We on this program are rather disposed to differ with the senator from Indiana. General Eisenhower's responsibility to the people has been demonstrated at least as clearly as that of his Senate critics. General Eisenhower was speaking of his responsibility one week ago tonight when he said, As a soldier, I have been given an allied assignment that directly concerns the security of the free world, with special reference to the countries bordering upon the Atlantic Ocean. I have approached the task aiming at the good of the United States of America, conscious that a strong, solvent America is the indispensable foundation for a free world. In Washington this week, General Hershey told Congress that he had prepared an order calling for the drafting of married men between the ages of 19 and 26 who have no children and are not veterans. Hershey still favors the drafting of 18-year-olds. The new tax bill to raise part of the $16.5 billion needed for the new budget was submitted. Taxes on automobiles, whiskey, beer, cigarettes, gasoline, television, and bowling will go up. An additional income tax of $4 per hundred right across the board, regardless of income, is also in the bill. At the United Nations, India refused to permit Sir Benegal Rao, who voted against tagging China the aggressor, to serve on the new ceasefire committee. And most Americans, including Herbert Hoover, agreed that even if India disagreed with the U.S. at the U.N., she was still entitled to our grain to meet the famine that now threatens there. The Chinese Communist Radio broadcast a complaint that American intrigue prevented it from getting a delegate to Lake Success in time to participate in Russian charges against U.S. aggression. There wasn't sufficient time, they said. And in the Chinatowns of New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, it was the beginning of the new year and the traditional New Year's celebration. Down near the tip of Manhattan, 6,000 Chinese are crowded on an oriental island within an island, near the shadows of the Wall Street skyscrapers and partly under the weaving, twisting 3rd Avenue L. This week, Shavy Lee, the unofficial mayor of Chinatown, with drums and cymbals and fireworks, led his fellow American Chinese in a mass reaffirmation of their faith in American democracy. There were the usual firecrackers and Chinese bands and a few words from Mayor Lee. To our honored president, we, the Chinese-American of New York, pledge allegiance. As a recognized representative of the Chinese-Americans, I, Shavy Lee, unofficial mayor of the city of New York's Chinatown, respectfully address you. We grieve for the people of our former motherland. We have fallen victims to communist domination and pray that China shall not continue under the Russian heel. We love America and will support her to the point of laying down our lives. We will now reaffirm our loyalty to the United States of America. All right, I pledge allegiance to our flag and to the republic to which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But the sound of Chinese symbols and bugles and fireworks was not limited to New Year's celebrations in America's Chinatown. Far from the Third Avenue L and San Francisco's Golden Gate, there were more bugles and symbols and fireworks. 
and a familiar song in an unfamiliar background. Ever since they entered the war, the Chinese communists have gone into battle using their traditional bugles and symbols as instruments of psychological warfare. Recently, Lieutenant Hiram E. Daniels of the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division led his platoon into combat, and the sound of American trumpets and cymbals could be heard across the Korean battlefields. Long before the days of Patton and Pershing, U.S. cavalry units used Gary Owens as their service song. This 33rd week of the Korean War, the dismounted 1st Cavalry Division was again moving to the familiar tune of Gary Owens. All week in Korea, United Nations troops pushed slowly towards Seoul. General Ridgway made it clear we were out to kill communists, not to gain any geographic position. We were using tanks in such number as we'd never used them before in Korea. Our artillery, our air, and our infantry attacked day after day. Tonight, our artillery and guns from our tanks are dropping their shells into Seoul itself. Our troops are from three to five miles away at three or four points. The Defense Department's casualty list this week was the smallest of the Korean War, 574. That makes our total casualties, killed, wounded, and missing, 47,000. And the Pentagon compares this to 525,000 North Korean and Chinese casualties since the Korean War started. Tonight, UN forces in Korea are at the banks of the Han River below Seoul, determined to seek out the enemy, an estimated 20,000 of them, trapped between two of our forces and the river. The communist camouflage continues to be one of his best weapons. Where we could find him, we could take him. Captain H.C. Kroll describes the enemy's condition this week. We found that the Chinese, uh, Chinese troops are very well clothed, quite a bit of new equipment, plenty of ammunition, and they're not hurting for chow. And it's known that the Chinese get as many as possible of their wounded and dead off the battlefield before they leave. As a morale factor, I believe, against our troops to make them think that we have expended a terrific amount of ammunition without killing anything. But the U.S. 1st Cavalry did not do all the fighting nor all the singing in Korea this week. In all the dispatches of the last months, the names of the Puerto Rican units, along with the U.S., French, and the Turks, have been cited as doing some of the toughest, bloodiest fighting. The other day, a Puerto Rican tank pulled up beside a bridge below Seoul. And although the people of Puerto Rico might not be very proud of their tone or rhythm, they had good reason to be proud of their 11 men squatting atop the Sherman tank, singing Besame Mucho. On Wednesday, a three-star general and two admirals flew to Memphis, Tennessee to present the second highest award this nation can offer to the parents of a Memphis boy of 18 who died with the 24th Division in Korea. I am distinctly honored today to have been designated to present Distinguished Service Cross to the parents of Private Cleveland. In presenting this, I represent the President, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Army. Mr. and Mrs. Claiborne, will you please... That was the voice of Lieutenant General John R. Hodge as he stood before the mayor and 2,500 white and colored townspeople and friends of Edward Claiborne, 
private U.S. infantry who happened to be a Negro. The day before the ceremony, we ask our CBS newsroom in Memphis to send a reporter out to the Claiborne home in Bailey's Alley. There, reporter Kitty Kelly found his mother, Mrs. Florence Claiborne, cooking turnip greens and ham hocks in the smoky kitchen of a neat but cramped three-room cabin in which seven members of Private Claiborne's family live. Mrs. Claiborne reads the last letter received from her son, written a few days before he died, standing on a ridge in Korea, firing his machine gun until it blistered his hands to permit his company to get away. Dear Mom, just a few lines to let you hear from me. When these few lines reach you, I hope they will find you all well and in the best of health. Mom, I am now somewhere in Korea. I am hoping when these few lines reach you, I still, I will still be alive. Mother, tell all the boys I say hello. I have been in a tight spot, but came out all right. Thanks to the Lord. So tell Dad, don't work too hard. And be sure you write and tell me when you move in your new home. Mother, I never did get a chance to increase your allotment. But I am still trying. But you know they don't pay while you are fighting. So just don't worry about anything. So I will write you as much as I can. From your son, Private Edward Claiborne. Attention to orders. By direction of the President, the Commanding General of the 8th United States Army Career has awarded the Distinguished Service Cross posthumously to Private Edward O. Claiborne. For extraordinary heroism in military operations against an armed enemy. So intense was the interest in Memphis that the presentation ceremony was moved to the Booker T. Washington High School so that all could pay tribute. The allotment checks which Private Claiborne had wanted to increase would not be coming anymore. But there was the $10,000 insurance check, which would move the Claiborne family to the kind of home their 18-year-old son wanted for his people. DSC winner Claiborne had died fighting for his country. Mayor Watkins Overton spoke to an audience of 2,500 citizens, Negro and white, who were deeply in the debt of Private Claiborne. I am not here as your mayor today to make an address. No words of mine can add to the glory of Private Claiborne who gave his life. Yes, he gave his life for his comrades, but he gave his life for his country. Nothing I can say or anyone can say can add to his deeds and what he did. But I am here as your mayor and the mayor of all Memphis to tell you that Memphis is proud of the sacrifice he made. And Memphis is proud that he was a citizen of our city. The fact that it happened in Memphis, Tennessee, would make Memphis greater and America Stronger. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for air, 
based on the week's news and its importance to the American people. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 9 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who made the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. Retail food prices have again reached a new all-time high. Defense mobilizer Wilson has let it be known that he's deeply concerned over these rising food prices. Eric Johnston, his right-hand man, says the cost of living will continue to go up for the next few months. will very likely level off by summer. The Price Control Office says it's going to permit price increases on women's clothing, shoes, rugs, lamps, pots, and pans. And price stabilizer to Sal told a Toledo audience that the first person caught playing the black market would be made a national example. We know that it takes two to make a black market, the buyer as well as the seller. And this time we're going after both. The black marketeer is a first-class fifth columnist for Stalin, and I would hate to be the first one caught. The other government investigating agencies have promised us their cooperation and support, and we are going to let the black marketeer have both barrels with a double load of buckshot. Some notes on the impact of war. A help-wanted ad in a Washington newspaper reads, Secretary, cocktails at five. Employer guarantees husband in six months. In London, the House of Commons gave the Labour government two victories on conservative motions attacking the government's plan to nationalize steel and its handling of the meat shortage. A report from Korea says there's an acute shortage of stationery for our troops. Suggests that people writing to men there enclose some blank sheets along with their letters. The fifth and what was defined as final blast in the atomic testing ground near Las Vegas, Nevada, took place. And the community settled back to what it calls the routine. There had been many witnesses to the intense light that the atomic test created. But TWA Captain Eddie Boyce had a balcony seat in his commercial airliner at 18,000 feet. The whole world seemed to light up with a brilliancy that I have never experienced before. Uh, I had expected somewhat a distant flash of lightning or great light, but nothing as it really was. The sun seemed to disappear entirely and the light seemed to bounce against the snow-capped Rockies on the east side of me and then be deflected into space. I whirled around immediately toward the source of the light and saw a big red um, ball which seemed to be growing in size and increasing in intensity. It looked to be uh, yellow-white, something as you would look directly into a steel furnace. If we'd been any closer, I don't believe we could have uh, faced it at all. And my first thought at the time was to glance down at the clock and say exactly 6.47 and a half mountain time, and it lasted about 10 or 12 seconds. That's the atom bomb, boys and girls, and I hope, I pray God that we never see one again. The newsroom at KNX Los Angeles was the scene of one of the weird tricks which nature and atomic energy can play on just plain reporters. Before you hear CBS reporter Ed Conklin tell of the strange incident at his news desk 350 miles away from the explosion... We should like to remind you, as we reminded ourselves, that sound travels about 1,100 feet per second, 
while light travels 186,000 miles per second. This is what happened in our Hollywood newsroom at 5.45 a.m. on Wednesday. We saw the bomb go off here in Hollywood more than 300 miles from the testing ground. Around 5.45, I glanced up to the northeast window of the CBS News Bureau. The whole horizon flared briefly through the early morning fog. With a couple of news shows coming up shortly, we talked over on the desk what sort of report we need from our Las Vegas correspondent. Then I put through a routine call to Red Blanchard at station KLAS in Las Vegas to line up the morning coverage. Busy in the control room, didn't know we had one, said Red when the call went through, but I'll check the tape recorder to see if we caught the sound. Then wham, the sound of that fifth atomic blast rumbled into Las Vegas and I could hear it plainly over the phone line. Funny business reporting an atomic explosion. Saw the flash in Hollywood more than 300 miles away. Then nearly five minutes later over a telephone line actually heard the explosion as the sound reached nearby Las Vegas. There was much speculation all week as to exactly what was going on at the Nevada Proving Ground. Yesterday, Chairman McMahon of the Congressional Atomic Energy Committee told us the tests have enlarged our knowledge of atomic weapons, how they work, how they may be used, He said they offered widespread implications for military strategy, tactics, and civilian defense. The senators seemed to be suggesting that we were working on some sort of atomic artillery. The Army Chief of Staff, J. Lawton Collins, making no reference to the Nevada tests, stated in an interview with U.S. News & World Report that the use of atomic shells for close-range fighting was within the foreseeable future. General Collins. We hear reports of some 40,000 tanks and 200-odd divisions that we might have to meet. That can be done with a very much smaller number of tanks and also with smaller divisions, properly equipped, as I've said before, and with an integrated scheme of defense that involves demolitions, possible fifth column activity, other things of that sort. We also have the possibility in the not too distant future of having guided missiles with or without atomic warheads that might well be used tactically to aid in preventing the overrunning of Western Europe. The next sound you will hear is not one you have ever heard on your radio. We debated at some length whether it was within the bounds of good taste. We decided it most definitely was. Here from a field hospital in Korea is a soldier who has just had his leg amputated but doesn't yet know it's gone. I'd better put that guy to sleep. This story on Hear It Now has been in production for more than six weeks. To tell it properly, we shall have to use sounds and voices franker and less temperate than those usually heard on the radio. We believe that too much is not ever said on the radio, that too much of the raw meat and fury of life is spared the listener in the belief that he must be spoon-fed and must not be permitted to hear any of the brutal naked sounds and phrases that our sons and brothers hear every day on the battlefield. We're about to tell a story with the help of General Ridgway, Vice President Barclay, Bob Hope, and a couple of dozen boys in Korea. If you're a bit squeamish or sensitive about being an ear witness to open wounds and death, we suggest you tune us out. But I urge you to stay with us for the next 15 minutes. This is a story that has to be told. The first voice you will hear is that of Admiral Ross McIntyre, for many years physician to FDR and now in a key defense job in Washington. Hello? This is Dr. McIntyre. 
We've just received the latest quota from the Defense Department on how much blood they need in Korea. You'll get that quota on the teletype in a few moments. And I want to see it roll. So get to work on it. That was Ross McIntyre, whose job it is to collect blood for the use of the armed services and get it to Korea in time to do some good. Now, here is a chaplain in Korea who saw a G.I.'s empty, drained veins and arteries eat up 13 pints of blood in one long night. My name is Chaplain Zelensky. I'm the chaplain at Fort Field Hospital. My hometown is Chicago. I know one very fine example of a lieutenant who, upon entering the northern capital, was shot and was returned evacuated to our hospital. We know that upon his arrival here, he looked half dead. Almost immediately after receiving the first pint of blood, you could see the life returning back to that man. And after 13 pints of blood and 12 hours of surgical work, the lieutenant became conscious, and the first question he asked is, where is my wallet? We wondered about those 13 pints of blood. We wondered where they came from. What happened to them from the time the blood left the donor's arm in New York, Great Falls, or Mobile until they reached a soldier's arm at Suwan or Taigu? We decided to follow a pint of blood in all its steps, from your arm to your defender's arm in Korea. This, then, is the biography of a pint of blood, perhaps a pint of your blood. Would you lie down on the table, please? I'm going to put some green soap on your arm. And now we clean it off with alcohol. You go to the blood bank near your home. And I'm going to put You wonder why there aren't more people there. They tell you there aren't so many willing donors these days. Korea is a long way off, the nurse says. Would you close your fist, please? You roll up your sleeve. A slim young girl across the room smiles reassuringly at you as she finishes giving her pint. Nothing to it, she says. Okay, now make a tight fist and hold it. This will sting you for a moment, just like being stung by a bee. All right, now open and close your fist slowly and do that all the time. As directed, you open your fist and close it. Each time you hear the pulsating sound of a little of your blood going through the sterile tube into a bottle. You've got 14 pints. You won't miss it. Your body will make it up in 48 hours. In six minutes, you are through. They give it a number, 3685E, type O. You ask permission to watch them pack bottle number 3685E with two dozen like it. Okay, Larry, will you give me a hand with this chest? It's packed in a chest, especially lined and iced to maintain the required temperature. 3685E. 5492E. 6149E. The chest and several others like it are rushed to the airport. This is whole blood. Much more vital than plasma and much more needed in frozen Korea. But it lasts only 21 days. If it doesn't make it in time, it will be wasted. But it'll make it. The chest is rushed by fast plane to Travis Air Base in California. This is a staging area for blood from all over the nation. Other chests arrive. Other labels, other types, other numbers from other arms. You watch them gently unpack the only war ingredient American industry can't make. Blood, made in Newton, Massachusetts, in Columbia, South Carolina, in Cleveland, in Wichita, in Portland, Oregon. 
Mr. Motorpool? Uh, this is Lieutenant Parker of the Armed Services Blood Lab. I'd like to get uh, a six-by, come up here to the building T310, pick up some blood, and take down to the freight terminal. Half an hour? Oh, we want it right away. Plane's leaving. We've got to get it on board. Okay, in five minutes? Right. You watch the crates assemble. Watched train loaders gently load the precious cargo. Okay, let's take her. You sit in the cargo section of the big C-54. Your eyes search the lines of chests until you locate the one from your hometown. You look at the other labels. You wonder what impelled that man in Newton, Massachusetts to give his blood. Very happy at the thought to give blood, especially to the boys in Korea, having also had use of it myself during the previous war. The crate from South Carolina. You wonder what they were thinking when they gave their blood. I lost one brother over in World War II, and this is the least I can do to help make up for what he went through while he was over there. The plane lands at Hickam Field, Hawaii, where the plane is refueled, the blood re-iced. This is Hickam Tower. ATC clears MAP 0092 to the Wake Airport. The next stop is Wake. You notice a crate from Cleveland. Perhaps a housewife gave some of that blood. My husband is missing in action in Korea. I like to feel that the blood I am donating, while it might be too late to help him or save his life, will be in time to help save someone else's life. The pilots change at wake, but the plane takes time only to refuel. The blood is now four days old. This is Wake Tower. ATC clears match 0092 to Haneda Airport. The next stop is Haneda Airport on the outskirts of Tokyo. You notice in the far corner of the plane, one crate from a veteran's hospital. Why should a guy that's been wounded keep on giving? I know what it means. I've been wounded three times in Korea. Stop and think. Tomorrow one of your loved ones may be there. This is Busan. You're cleared number one to land. Busan Tower Finally, the great wheels touch down on Korean soil. You are at Busan, once almost a Dunkirk in the early part of the Korean War. You find that blood is a full-time job for some of the people there. This is Captain John A. Zergat, Little Rock, Arkansas. I am the movement control officer at an airstrip in South Korea. The uh, blood is packed in most instances in pint bottles so that it can be used immediately. You keep an eye on that crate with your number on it. Now the chests of blood split up again, different ones going to different places in the line. You follow the one from your community. It continues its journey of mercy by plane. Trucks are too rough, but the planes are smaller now. An ambulance meets the small plane somewhere near a battlefront. A careful driver watches the bumps on the shell-marked road from the strip to the field hospital. You watch them open the crate, Quickly, your eye races up and down the evenly racked bottle stoppers, reading the numbers. Less than four hours later, they get to number 3685E. You follow your bottle into a tent-marked operating room. They put a mask and gown on you. You notice muddy combat boots sticking out from under the surgeon's sterile robe. You look over his shoulder at the patient on the table. His name is Charles Beach, a corporal from Denver. He has caught a load of shrapnel in his chest. You listen to his breathing. 
It is weak and irregular, even when amplified by the equipment. They tell you that he has been on the table for four hours, that he's already had one transfusion. You watch trained fingers punch a hole in the rubber stopper of number 3685E. Watch the tube enter the bottle, the other end enter Corporal Beach's veins. You watch the surgeons and the nurses' fingers race against time, probing out the particles of metal, removing a rib, mending the arteries, cleaning out the poison. Another tube sucks out the blood that is emptied into his chest as yours replenishes his supply. You listen. The first bottle of blood is over. The nurse anesthetist is now going over to pick up the second bottle of blood. Into the chest cavity of Corporal Beach goes another kind of a blood sucker. Another tube to take up the excess blood. It's now 2.30 in the morning of February 1st. The second pint of blood is about halfway down into Corporal Beach's arm. The incision into his lung has been completed. The lung has been cleaned out. They are now working on sealing it up and putting in a drain for any further fluid which accumulates in his lung cavity. Stitch by stitch, the skin is being closed over his chest wound, chest cavity. Chest wound has been sewed up, and now the doctor's cut it. It's now about 10 minutes of three. The last few drops of blood are flowing slowly into Corporal Beach's vein. The surgeon has just finished stitching up the skin on his chest. Corporal Beach is all finished. His operation is through, but he has the labored breathing characteristic of a chest operation. The final stitches are in place. They watch Corporal Beach's readings, but more than anything now, they are listening. Listening for that slow, uneven breath to either stop or quicken and become regular. When it happens, the entire tent relaxes. The masks hide their mouths, but their eyes smile. The doctor's steel steady hand begins to shake as he relaxes. Corporal Beach is wheeled back to the ward tent. The bottle, 3685E, is empty. Your heart is full. You walk out into the cold Korean night. Ask permission to visit some of the other wards. Ask a few of the wounded boys what a pint of blood meant to them on another operating table. You hear a corporal from Texas. My name Corporal Ray. I'm from Texas, Waco. They brought me in the hospital here. I was uh, weak. I can already set up. I was in a truck accident. And they gave me some blood as soon as I got here to get my strength back. If it wasn't for blood, they already had it. We're in a bottle like that. Well, I guess people just die from a loss of blood. If it weren't for blood. Listen to a PFC from the Midwest. My name's Marley Burnett. I was hit on here 201. I was hit twice in the leg. One shell wound and one shrapnel wound. I lost a lot of blood. They give me a blood transfusion, one pint of blood. After I found, got the blood, I felt better. It meant my whole life to get it. And from a hospital cot, almost too weak to talk, these painful words from a young G.I. from Georgia. Smith, Herbert E., Georgia. It was my first time. I was up there about 
I guess I was only here about six hours altogether. And I don't know, I think I killed about three or maybe four Chinese. I figured they were Chinese. And one got me in the back with a grenade. <coughs> that was, I mean, uh, this is the same one. I'd shot him about four times already, and he fell. I slid behind his bushes. I couldn't see him anymore. The buddy I was with, supposed to be in the foxhole with me, he'd left me by myself. Since I've been here, I feel a lot better. Since I've been here, I feel a lot better. And another soldier, so badly wounded that he reads his injuries almost as if it were a grocery list. Got in his stomach, face, leg, hand, head. I want to thank all the people who gave us blood to save my life. I don't know where all the blood came from, but... Sure save my life. And now I'll be able to get get home and see my mother. Everybody again. You have a considerable inferiority complex when you're with the Corporal Beaches, the Rays, and the Burnets. As for them, they gripe a little, but seem mostly just glad to still be alive. They ask you to please thank anybody that sent any blood over. You stop by to see Corporal Beach again before you leave. His chest is much better, and he's well enough to mention that he needs a haircut. He asked you to call his grandmother, Mrs. Delia Kerr, in Denver when you get back to the States. You tell him you will. We asked our CBS station in Denver to go out and see Beach's grandmother. She had practically raised him. And tell her that Corporal is okay and will soon be home. Mrs. Kerr made a record, thanking all those who gave blood to her boy and to others like him. As the grandmother of Charles Beach... I can't tell you how happy I am to hear that he is getting along all right. I raised Charles from the time he was a little boy. And I love him like my own son. I thank God for the doctor who gave him the blood which saved his life. I don't know who it was who gave that blood in the first place. But whoever you are, may God bless you. We have tried to tell the biography of a pint of blood. We have raised our small voice with this story because for the first time since Pearl Harbor, there is a shortage of blood. We have told this story because we were sure that once the American people knew the facts, the scarcity of blood would end. We are making an appeal to you to give blood because those young men who are fighting our battle in Korea need your blood, just as we are asking them to spill theirs. We and the 173 stations which carry this broadcast are using all our combined kilowatts to raise our voices and say, what about your blood? Can you spare a pint? If you need more convincing, listen to what Bob Hope, who spent considerable time in canvas hospitals in Korea, has to say. This is Bob Hope, ladies and gentlemen, without the jokes. What you've just been listening to is a slice of war minus the trimmings. The scene changes, but the dirty face of war, the desperate urgency of help when it is needed... Those things don't change. I remember a GI in Korea, tired, beaten, and hungry. He had just come back from the lines. They told him after a couple hours rest, he'd have to go back. And he turned around and said, what do you want, blood? That's what those boys are given, and that's what they need. Blood. Your blood. Now. Thank you. General MacArthur has sent us a cable stating... 
There is no adequate substitute for living red blood cells in the form of whole blood. In the common cause, both patriotic and humanitarian, we need a continuing supply until our defensive war in Korea has been won. And General Matt Ridgway, whose 8th Army has held the line in Korea and is almost back in Seoul, stood before our CBS mic at the Suwon airstrip just three days ago and sent you this message. I know of nothing more typical of the cooperative effort of this great inter-service allied team fighting for all of us here than the contributions of those who give blood by which the lives of these men who are carrying the fight are saved. Don't let anyone tell you that there is no need for us to give whole blood, that substitutes in synthetic blood can serve just as well. This is not true, as General MacArthur and every surgeon in the country has said. Our correspondents have watched operating surgeons lie down on the table and give their own blood, because there was no other blood there. The fortunate part of this problem is that the solution is so easy, as far away as your pulse and your telephone. If a million people would pick up their telephones right now and say, I've got plenty of blood in me. You can have a pint whenever you're ready. Before this night is over, the nation's problem would be solved. During the past couple of days, we've been telling our colleagues here at CBS about tonight's program and the need for blood. More than 500 pledges have been signed and more are pouring in. Will you do the same thing? In just 60 seconds, the Vice President of the United States will lend his voice and his stature to this appeal. But before we go to Washington, here is the phone number in your own city or town where you can call to offer a pint of your blood. We take you now to the CBS station in your own community. the Senate office building in Washington, the Vice President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad to add my voice in just a moment to comment upon the voices you've already heard in appealing for the donation of blood. Those who are fighting the battles of liberty in Korea and elsewhere around the world are making the supreme sacrifice, or they're offering their lives, which is the greatest contribution any man can make to a great cause. Those of us who remain at home are in comparative safety. Certainly we can donate our blood in order that there may be created by the Red Cross a blood bank, that is, a supply of blood to be used in treating those of our servicemen and women who may be injured on the battlefields. 
and thereby make some contribution of our own, I therefore urge that the largest possible number of men and women in the United States volunteer and register their willingness to make this contribution and this comparatively small sacrifice when put up against the sacrifice being made by those who are fighting the battles of liberty and justice throughout the world. Thank you very much. Please call that Red Cross number in your community. And please, if the number is busy, call it again in five minutes. We are merely asking for a pint of your blood. The giving of it won't cost you anything. The Red Cross won't take it if the giving will endanger you in any way. You won't know who gets that blood. It's needed not only for Korea, but for disaster and civilian defense. You may need it yourself one day. And if it isn't there in the bank, well, some of us have seen men die because the blood wasn't there. And at those times, you can't pray or curse that blood into existence to feed that stout heart. Our ancestors spent considerable blood to ensure that we now have the chance to give a little of it freely as free men and women. final word, and we have done. We base this appeal upon a clear and present need for blood. There may be delays. Your blood may not be required immediately. Pray God it may not be required at all. We merely urge that you telephone that number and say, when you want my blood, just let me know. This is a small thing to ask, and we venture to ask it in the name of those you have heard here tonight, and in memory of those whose voices are now silent. You have just heard Program 9 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Morrow and Fred W. Friendly and a CBS staff which includes John Aaron, Edmund Scott, Irving Gitlin, Jesse Zosmer, and Joseph Wershber. Portions of the program originated at WTOP, Washington, WMSC, Columbia, South Carolina, WEEI, Boston, WCAU, Philadelphia, WWNC, Asheville, North Carolina, KLZ, Denver, WBBM, Chicago, WGAR, Cleveland, WREC, Memphis, WCAO, Baltimore, KOIN, Portland, Oregon, KMOX, St. Louis, KNX, Los Angeles, and KCBS, San Francisco. Special work on the blood sequences was done by John Jefferson and George Herman in Korea, Bill Nick Phil in San Francisco, and Max Marvin of the Department of Defense. And an expression of thanks to the men and women stationed at Keesler Field, Biloxi, Mississippi, who heard about this show from our CBS affiliate, WKRG in Mobile, Alabama, and have started the blood drive going by contributing 433 pints of blood. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of these same CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Olin's I speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.